You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, I almost got tired of smiling a while ago, just smiling at those testimonies. Uh, they're beautiful, beautiful testimonies. And Allison uh, leaned over afterwards and said, same story, beautiful different expressions of the same faith that we have in Jesus Christ. Beautiful following Jeff's uh, prayer focus and talking about the importance of the church and being connected with one another. My name is Brad Talley. I'm glad you are here. I'm the teaching elder at Grace. And the sermon that I'm going to preach today is absolutely the last sermon I would choose to preach on a day of baptism. Although, there are all kinds of connections you could make. I'm going to be talking about Judas today, of all people. Judas made a commitment at one time, but <laughs> along the way, fell off. Why did he fall off? We're going to talk about all of that stuff today, but it's exactly where we are in the text in John chapter 13. So here's a question for you. If God could be exactly as you want him to be, what would he be like? That's really not a fair question. All but the most arrogant or delusional among us would be reluctant to say, this is who I want God to be, so therefore that's who I deem him to be. And yet, without using those exact words, we all do that at some level, whether believer or unbeliever alike. Uh, let me pose another question. If you could only choose one of the following to be true about God, which would you choose first? God would explain the problem of evil in the world to everyone's satisfaction. As in, everyone... Everyone would be satisfied with the answer, the ultimate theodicy, or the answer to the problem of evil. Second, God would choose to overlook all sin and allow everyone to live with him in heaven. Isn't one of the greatest criticisms about God today is that he just arbitrarily sends people to hell if they don't do exactly like he wants them to or believe exactly like he wants them to. Maybe this would be your desire. Or third, God would explain himself so clearly in the Bible that we would understand everything such as election and choice. Understand everything well enough to make an informed decision to receive or reject him. Well, this of course means that we would have to understand whether or not we have a choice about believing. The problem with being finite creatures attempting to understand an infinite God is that even our questions about God will inevitably be flawed. For the first desire, for example, the very acknowledgement of good and evil, evil precludes people, everybody being satisfied with the answer. There's good, there's evil, I'm right, you're wrong. Not everybody can be satisfied, no matter how much you explain. As for the second thought, do you really want to say there's no justice in this world? Do you really think it would be cool to be in heaven with Hitler 
and Stalin, both of whom were responsible for the torture and murder of millions? And the third request, wouldn't it be true that if we knew everything about God, then either he would not be God or we would be God? We are finite humans not, who are not only incapable of understanding God's ways, we're incapable of knowing anything about him unless he reveals himself to us. us. <clears throat> and how much is he revealed to us? As much as he has deemed appropriate for us to know. Through creation, through our conscience, through the word, through Jesus. And if we do not receive by faith what he has revealed in his word, we will seek to mold him into a God of our own preferences. Thank goodness nobody here does that. Nobody on that new app that Jeff was talking about. You can just look through those and say, nobody in this, this church. No, we all want God to be a certain way. I mentioned last week that we would be thinking more about Judas' betrayal of Jesus because it's where we are in our study of John's gospel. One of the wonderful things that we discover in Scripture is that the stories there are, and the people in the stories there are so readily identifiable. We have had similar experiences. One of the great challenges to interpreting Scripture is that the people in the stories in the Bible are so readily identifiable. And we have had similar experiences, and we think, yeah, I get that, I get that. When sometimes we don't get that, because God does not explain himself to the level that many of us require. When it comes to Judas' betrayal of Jesus, there is much we surely do not understand. But we should be forewarned with the disciples to expect the unexpected in God's sovereign plan. In fact, maybe I'm just now thinking, that's the beauty of baptism on a day when we're reading such difficult things, is that we're reminded that while some walk away, many believe and many walk with Jesus for the rest of their days. For our initial reading, I will read John 13, 17 to 20. Then we'll deal with some of the sticky issues in the text before concluding with three challenges to the way that we view God. You can tell that those challenges are going to require faith by the title, Trusting God Before, During, After. Before, during, and after what? Just before, during, and after. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, and if you would please stand as God's Word is being read. John 13, 17, Jesus talking to his disciples after washing their feet. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. But I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one 
who sent me. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you and be seated. When we pick up the story in John 13, 17, Jesus has just finished washing his disciples' feet and commanding them to do the same for one another. But he has also promised them a blessing for their obedience. And then Jesus strikes an ominous chord. I have chosen you 12, but you should know that the scripture will be fulfilled when a close friend, one with whom I eat bread, will betray me. Jesus was quoting Psalm 41.9. In the ancient Near East, uh, for one who holds the honored position of being invited to a meal, and in the sense all the apostles were there at Jesus' invitation. So for one who has been invited to the meal and has been uh, given the privilege of eating bread with the leader of the meal, then for that person to betray the one who has invited him is just adding insult to injury. To show someone the bottom of your foot was akin to the ways that we use hand motions to uh, express our contempt for other people in our day. You see those expressions of contempt on the road quite a bit. Um, I've had one just recently uh, toward me, not from me. <laughs> verse 20, gosh, we could spend the whole day on verse 20, and all I'm, I've just got one line. Verse 20 ties Jesus' disciples to himself. And by extension, it ties us to him as well. So we should not be surprised when others reject our message because they're ultimately rejecting Jesus. We feel so offended when people are offended by what we say. They're really offended with Jesus or by Jesus. In verse 21, we're told that after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit. It's the same word that was used in John 11. And, and, and Jesus came to the home of Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And Mary finally came and threw herself at Jesus' feet weeping. And it says that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Well, think about the significance of Jesus' troubled spirit in the application, but notice here that he says plainly, one of you will betray me. Imagine how confused the disciples were. I mean, this, this one who could feed thousands with meager fare, just a handful of loaves of bread and, 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 and <coughs> a couple of fish, and, and the one who could calm the seas and heal the sick, the one who could raise the dead, for goodness sake, couldn't take care of one bad apple in the bunch? You would think that they would rise as one and say, Who is it, Lord? Let's get the scoundrel who would seek to hinder your coronation as king. It's moments like this. If only Gimli the dwarf were a disciple, things would have, been, would have gone differently, right? At least in his mind they would have. But instead, they just looked at each other, puzzled. 
Is it I? The synoptics tell us, is it, am I the one who would do this? Surely not. Lord, Peter, who was not troubled with self-doubt, asked the disciple whom Jesus loved to ask Jesus who it was. Now, to whom was the apostle John referring when he wrote of the disciple that Jesus loved? It would take a little while to go through all the reasons that I've come to this conclusion, but, but the best guess to this one's identity is the Apostle John, at least in my thinking it is. You should know that speaking in third person was different in that day than it is today. If we speak in third person, uh, we think of it as oftentimes think of it as arrogant, right? If I were to say to you, a very powerful sermon was preached last Sunday by the disciple whom Jesus loved. <laughs> and you would say, or by the pastor that Jesus loved, and you say, wait a minute, weren't you the one? Why, yes, yes, I was. <laughs> That's the way it feels to us. That is not the way it was in that day. You would rightly think of me as arrogant, delusional, and all the other things you could possibly consider. But it was really sort of an expression of humility in the first century. Again, just a big cultural difference than we would consider today. Why would Peter ask John to get the scoop from Jesus? I mean, all of this was going on quietly. Jesus and the disciples were reclining as they ate, probably in somewhat of a circle, certainly not as Leonardo da Vinci would have painted. Insightful as that painting is, it is inaccurate. So now get this, reclining at meals was a Hellenist practice. It had been brought in by Jews that had been scattered around the Roman Empire, and they sort of adopted some Greek ways. Jews never used to eat like this, but it, everybody had accepted it, even uh, the, the very, very Jewish people of Jerusalem would recline at, 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 at a table or around a table during an important meal. So that's another reason to think that this meal took place on Thursday night, the night before Jesus was arrested and crucified the next day. Uh, only if John reclined at Jesus' right hand could he lean back on Jesus' chest to ask him quietly who the betrayer would be. Culturally, again, this was a common practice. Even if it would be uncomfortable for some in our day, there was nothing <laughs> in any way improper about this in that day. It's unlikely that the disciples were arranged in any order of importance. So don't make too much about John being on Jesus' right hand. If there was a place of honor, it would have been to Jesus' left. And there's a very good possibility that it was Judas who was on Jesus' left. And this position on the left of the host indicated a special friendship. So think about it. Jesus responded to Peter's request for information by saying, quietly, I'm sure, it is he to whom I will give a morsel of bread when I've dipped it. Now, once again, 
This is showing a person a very special, uh, or giving a person a very special place of honor. The morsel was a sign of love and respect as well. Now you think about this. Jesus may well have leaned into Judas, lying his head on his breast, just like John had done to Jesus. If Judas and Jesus were so close, why do we not hear more about it? Well, the, the apostles, the ones who wrote the Gospels, could hardly bring themselves to mention his name. It's like we would do today. Judas, I don't even want to talk a traitor. How could he do what he did? John tells us more, and maybe one of the reasons is John was probably written much later than the other three Gospels, and there was more distance, and he's able to process it a little more and say, you know what, this is all part of God's plan, but he's laying it out very graphically for us. How could Judas fail to be moved by Jesus' expression of love and extending the morsel of the bread, a morsel of bread? Don Carson offers some very helpful insight when he says, quote, Judas received the sop, but not the love. Instead of breaking him and urging him to contrition, it hardened. His resolve. You see this a lot, don't you? The very thing that you think will soften someone hardens them. At that point, Satan, only here mentioned by name, entered into him. The expression probably signifies through possession. Close quote. <laughs> okay, sis, this is the time we need to ask a hard question, which could have been asked before, but now is a good time. All through the book of John, Jesus has told the disciples that one of the chosen twelve would betray him. In other words, don't be surprised. It's going to happen. They still couldn't make any sense of it all. It's like, yeah, whatever. Come on, let's get about. Where are we going to hold the coronation ceremony? <clears throat> we know that Judas was fulfilling God's will in his betrayal of Jesus. Just like Pharaoh fulfilled God's plan when he hardened his heart and brought God's judgment upon the nation. But in addition to being told that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, we're told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart as well. As for Judas, back in John 6, verses 70 to 71... Jesus has said that he had chosen the twelve and one of them was a devil. We know that Jesus was referring to Judas. He didn't call him out by name, but we know Jesus was <coughs> referring to Judas at this point. So, does this mean that Jesus chose the twelve even though one of them was a devil? Or does it mean that Jesus chose Judas <coughs> who had been created to fulfill the very role that he would play in Jesus going to the cross. This is a huge question, and in fact, it really speaks to lots of our questions 
about Scripture. And let me just say this, not as a cop-out. This is after many, 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 many years of thought and prayer and study about these types of things. I think there's danger on both extremes for us. On the one end of the interpretive scale, Jesus, Judas started out great and went bad somewhere along the way. And so God used him to fulfill his plan. But that would mean, if you're in that extreme, that God is reactive and opportunist, moving chess pieces on the board to counter his opponent. Although we know he's going to have the upper hand, it's kind of like he's reactive. And we know that is not so. On the other end of the scale, God created Judas specifically for his role. And without Judas having any say in the matter whatsoever, he was chosen to be ever remembered for his treachery and condemned to hell. But we know that Judas was no different than any of us. Lost. Apart from Jesus saving him. So we're not all eligible for use. Look, you may lean in one direction or another. But scripture does not allow us to go fully all the way to one side. But we like Explanations for everything. I'm as American as you are. I, I like to work it all out in my mind and say, there it is. Tie it up in a neat little bow. And it, and it just won't be. Why? Because we're not God. He is greater than we are. And he, he says, here it is. This is all I'm telling you. Now trust me. You don't suppose God wants us to trust him in this, do you? Back to the meal. After Jesus dismissed Judas, confusion, confusion reigned in the room. It was Jewish custom to give alms to the poor on Passover night. The temple gates were left open from midnight until all through the night, and so the poor would gather there and folks would come and give their alms. And so it, it makes perfect sense that the disciples thought, oh, well, that's what Judas is going to do. Maybe he's going to purchase something for the next day's meal. It's unlikely. Probably he's going to give alms to the poor. Why didn't Peter and John try to stop him? If nobody else knew that Judas was the culprit, Peter and John knew. Maybe the simplest explanation is that you cannot stop God's plan, no matter how good your intentions are. Now, we're accountable. We're responsible. We are to live our lives as best we can in the kingdom and the ways that God has designed for us to. But sometimes, in spite of our best efforts, things go crazy. And God's will is done, even when it doesn't feel like it. Even so, when Judas went out to portray Jesus, John takes note. It was night. Which in the Gospel of John always carries a theological connotation of spiritual darkness. I've included the last three verses of John 13 in today's text. Not, not to spend a lot of time here, but just to draw a contrast between Peter and Judas. 
And sometimes it just, you just have to think, I'm not exactly sure about that, but I get it. In, in the same way that Judas' treachery was introduced last week uh, to be addressed here more thoroughly today, now we want to introduce Peter's struggle with holding fast for, for, uh, for Jesus in a, in a moment of, of crisis uh, to be addressed more specifically next um, there's a difference between Judas' betrayal, Peter's denial. Jesus, uh, next week we're going to see, starts to, be, to give very specific instructions of what life is going to be like for the apostles and the disciples after he goes away. And, and Peter is like in verse 36, go away? What are you talking about? You're not going away. Look, I will go to the death with you except no Judas made a calculated decision to portray Jesus while Peter succumbed to fear and denied knowing Jesus to save his own skin it's not the last time Peter will give in to fear we find it much later up in Antioch Syria uh, when Judaizers come, well, I don't need to go there. Uh, but Peter just had this tendency to talk big, but then to, 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 to chicken out sort of at the last moment. When Judas realized what he had done, he hung himself. When Peter realized what he'd done, he wept, he had done, he wept bitterly and repented of his cowardice. Wasn't it beautiful to hear those testimonies people talking about, I want to live a life of repentance. And, and understanding what that means. Less than two months after Peter chickened out, he risked his life to preach at the temple on Pentecost and became the leader of the early church. A big difference between the two. So how should we respond to such an unsettling text I think it's really important for us to consider this because it, it, it speaks to the unsettling times in the contemporary church where many are questioning God and Jesus at the highest levels three thoughts about God's design for us to weather the storms beginning with settle in your heart that God is holy God is wise and God is just. If you do not begin here on any of the questions you have about God, about Scripture, about the way that things go in the world, about the way Christians act, the way unbelievers act, if you do not start here, you are heading for trouble. The problem with the questions about God that I posed at the beginning of the message is that if God exists, I don't think we get to tell him who he ought to be. Think about it. He's God. He is God. And when the questions come that we can't fully wrap our heads around, or the inequities of life that just trouble us. We have to start. We have to go back to the foundation. God is 
holy, God is wise, God is just. Have you heard people say, or, or, or maybe you've been tempted to say yourself, my God would not intentionally kill someone with a tornado. Or a loving God would not send people to hell just because they have different beliefs about Jesus. But, once again, do we get to tell God who he is? Look, we are experts, always have been, from creation right on, right from the fall right on. We've always been experts at, <clears throat> at, at promoting our views in a way that just <laughs> makes other people seem ridiculous. Not only is God holy, wise, and just, he also loved us enough to address our sin problem that had separated us from God. He sent Jesus to bear the punishment that we deserved. Can you think... You see all this going on in our government. You see all this going on in the world. You see all that everybody is so upset about how things would change in a flash. If all of a sudden the holiness of God appeared to all of us. And all of a sudden we see ourselves in relation to God. He loved us enough to address our sin problem. Part of God's plan in addressing our sin problem was for Judas to betray Jesus. How does that make sense? We will not understand the full scope of God's plan until eternity. But Judas had surely convinced himself in some way that people needed a Messiah different to the one that he had thought Jesus was. It's like, okay, I, I got it for a while, but I just, I, I, I've seen too much, and I can't go with this anymore. That sound familiar? A lot of people are walking away from the faith in our day, convinced that they're doing the right thing. And I'm not saying that those who are struggling with doubt are like Judas who have no hope. No, we... <coughs> always have hope until we draw our last breath and it's our call constantly the Lord is calling us back to himself but many in our day are rethinking their relationship with Jesus they've convinced themselves that they're walking away from antiquated beliefs that have served to hurt and repress people and and they have been misused to hurt and repress people but if you think this all the way through the source of our inner turmoil is not the result of the preaching of the gospel. But oddly enough, legalism on all sides. If you think you're casting off the binds of moralistic overreach in the church, you're going to be disappointed to find the moralizers or among those who champion climate change and economic restructuring and life choices about babies It extends to both post-birth and many more issues that the culture deems important at the moment. 
whatever side you get on, boy, you better be in there all the way. And you better think the other side is stupid and wrong and incredibly unloving and unkind. And really something ought to be done. And you cannot get out of the corner. This last week in the Iowa caucuses, you know, they, they line up in the corner behind the candidate they want. And then if you don't reach a certain threshold, they have to move to another corner. Well, in our day, you get in the corner and you stay in the corner and you do everything you can to say all of y'all are stupid and wrong and dangerous, in fact. But everybody else is pointing back. Legalism extends well beyond religion. People simply trade one form of legalism for another. We do not all have to share the same thoughts about cultural and political issues of the day to follow Jesus. In fact, that is one of the beautiful things of the gospel. We read about it next week. Hereby will all people know you are my disciples because you have love one for another. Even though we might find ourselves in different views about with different views about a lot of the issues of the day still we love one another in Christ so you don't have to all agree 100% but if we do not trust that our God is holy wise and just we will begin to question why is it exactly that I still believe pray if you need to Lord I believe help my unbelief and your unbelief is helped considerably as you stay in the word the source of your faith second trust God's sovereignty in all circumstances I suppose that this really is is little more than a restatement of the first application it's always been a difficult time to put your faith in a crucified Savior who was 100% God, 100% man. Difficult, that is, unless the Lord has drawn you and you believe in Jesus. Even if your faith is strong, Satan will find your weak spots and hit you in places you had no idea existed. And sometimes the area comes in places of strength which is even more confusing. You, you expect God to hit you or Satan to hit you in your weak spots, right? But when he hits you in his strength and all of a sudden you find yourself doing things you thought you would never do because I'm better than that. You're, you know, we go from one to the and we're like Peter. Lord, I'll never walk away from you. You can count on me to the end. And then Satan hits us there. The cultural and political tone of the day demands an answer for everything. So it's not surprising that people are satisfied with simplistic answers to life's biggest problems. Does that make sense? You need an answer, so you Google it. And if enough people say it, if the algorithms are, you know, structured just right, then it's true. It's got to be true, right? Deep down, we know better. And when the issues arise for which we have no answer, 
we've got a choice. Come up with an answer or trust that God is sovereign. And I want to encourage you, especially those of you who are young, and there is intense pressure on you to walk away from Jesus. Give it time. And while you're giving it time, trust him. Believe that he is sovereign. Even if you are in pain, no matter your age, or depressed, or suffering great loss, when you trust God's sovereignty in your crisis, you're already on your way to recovery. Which will happen most fully in the last thought. Rest in Jesus' work rather than your own. Judas felt that Jesus needed to be stopped. And Peter felt that he was strong enough to handle any challenge. And both were wrong. Both were deeply disappointed with the choices that they eventually made. But Judas was simply aggrieved that he was wrong. While Peter repented to find Jesus looking for him after the Savior's resurrection. Tell my disciples and Peter, I have risen. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. In John 13, 21, we're told that Jesus was troubled in spirit as he faced the cross. I told you we'd come back to this. His hour had come and he knew that he would soon bear the sins of the world, absorbing the wrath that God rightly and justly poured out on our sins. Our sins were on Jesus. And he was bearing the wrath that should have gone toward us because of our sin. In two weeks, Dr. Calvert, David Calvert, will be preaching from the early portion of John 14, where we're going to hear Jesus tell his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. It was likely only minutes between Jesus Bearing the burden of his soul and his, him telling the disciples to cast their cares upon him and not allow their souls to be troubled. Believing Jesus, following Jesus, being a Christian is not about what you can do to save yourself or to save the world. You can't do anything about that. Being a Christian which doesn't mean that we're not concerned with the needs of the world. We, we absolutely are concerned about those who have less than we do. There's no question in that in Scripture. But we cannot save the world and thus save ourselves. Being a Christian is about believing. Not about what you can do, but about what Jesus has done. What he has already done for you. Do we have answers for all the big questions of the universe, can we respond to everyone's satisfaction about the inequities of life and the inconsistencies of fallible human beings, whether they're believers or not? Of course not. But we can believe God, which means we believe Jesus. So let the work the truth of Jesus' work on your behalf wash over you as we close 
with these thoughts. First, because Jesus bore our troubles, we can be at peace with God. Because he was troubled, we don't have to be. Second, because Jesus paid for our sins, we will be pronounced not only innocent, but righteous. See, this is not acquitted, and everybody still has their opinion. This is righteous, which is somebody's opinion, I suppose. But next, because Jesus was forsaken, we will always be secure. Where are you right now? Are you adrift on the cultural seas of change and yet absolute conformity required? Last, because God is both sovereign and good, we can always Trust him. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Let's pray. Lord, have mercy. Have mercy upon us when we assume that we know more than you, that we love more than you, that we care more than you, have mercy on us. Oh, Father, thank you for sending your Son, Jesus, to bear the wrath, the righteous wrath, the, 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 the wrath that settles the scores and makes everything okay. And Jesus took it instead of us. Thank you for those who have on this day proclaimed by video and will in the second service proclaim, I belong to Jesus. Thank you that you were saying at the same time, I belong to McKenzie and Hudson, and all the others. Lord Jesus, forgive us for doubting you, for questioning you. May we follow you with all our hearts. May Jesus be glorified in our lives as we trust that you are holy and just and wise, and you do all things well. Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. 
but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.